Shalom and welcome to Product Nation, a weekly podcast by product managers in Silicon Valley covering how tech product gets created and executed by some of the most accomplished product experts in the world. I am Ofer Barav and today with me and my co-host Nir Paz, we welcome Gilad Turban. Nir, what's going on? Everything's good. Everything's good. How are you, Ofer? I'm great. Where are you today, virtually? Today, that's the Golden Gate Bridge. I left my uh, little island from last week. Right now, I'm on my little drone above San Francisco. <laughs> And if you could make a special request of Zoom, what other backgrounds would it be? Another background? Well, I do, I do have a costume one. I saw yesterday somebody's using the Simpson couch for a background, but... I don't know, probably something from uh, Rick and Morty or something like that. One favorite place in the world that you would love to have in the background? Fiji, easy. But that's what we said last time. All right, so next that time we're doing matter. it. It's still my favorite. <laughs> Great. Gilad, how about you? That's a good question. What do I want? Well, I have Africa right now in my background, but I think I want a virtual one that has my kids hopping up and down just to distract people. I think that would be awesome. And then I can pull it up every time I want to make people not look at me or something. <laughs> Attention grabbers. Most people have it in live anyway, I guess, right? Yeah, BC Anchor 2.0. <laughs> All right, so let's get started. Gilad, tell us about you in a couple of minutes. Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in Israel. I actually started doing product in the Israeli army, which is kind of funny because I started as a developer and became a PM and fell in love with it. And you do product management in the army exactly the same way you do out there. I think they still have a template for a PRD back in the day that is under my name. So I'm quite proud of that one. And what I realized is that I want to build a stronger foundation. So I went and studied computer science in the Hebrew University and specifically focused on human-computer interaction. I thought oh. that my added value would be to come from the UX side of things and bring that sense into product management. I then decided to go and broaden my horizon. So I'm what you'd call a breadth PM. I didn't focus on a specific field, but rather decided to go and explore what does product management look like in a large company like Microsoft and what does it look like in a non-tech yet corporate America company like Visa. And then focus specifically on growth companies. So Bidgely and then Aptus, where I'm at right now. So I, I definitely looked at the more holistic product management view and pulled in from business school, from the Hebrew University, those nuggets that can help me really bring a different lens to product. And what's your first arrival here in the U.S.? Uh, was it here in Silicon Valley? No. Well, yes and no. I lived in California for two years when I was a kid. which is why I sound semi but not really Israeli. Then I went back home. And then I moved to Chicago for business school seven and a half years ago and then went to Seattle and only then came to the Valley. And you were a lead I saw at Microsoft in Seattle. Can you talk about that experience? Uh, how did everything else you just uh, spoke about, the UX and maybe your military experience, how did that apply itself over there? Yeah, so Microsoft was such a cool opportunity. So I was out of business school and I was looking for an opportunity in a large tech company, but in a space that's not fully figured out yet. And I landed in a group called the Microsoft Learning Experiences Team, which revolves around, think Coursera or edX or all of these guys, Udacity, that build the learning experiences around the Microsoft products. 
And we also had an evangelism mission of, hey, how do we get people, especially young kids and then adults, to use technology and start becoming developers or IT professionals? So that's how I came in. And they brought me in specifically to lead first the free product, but later on, build an actual set of offerings around online learning. And to me, that was an amazing experience because you get to work on a non-core product and work with the business groups inside Microsoft, but also to lead something when you do have the funding of a large company and you do have the processes of a large company. So it was a real experience. You said it's a non-core product. It can be kind of challenging, especially in a company like Microsoft, that everything is business matrix. Everything is around Office and Windows and all the big products we know. What are the advantages, really, of working on a non-core product? Yeah, so that's a good one. There are absolutely those challenges that you're talking about. But I think that when you bring something that has value, suddenly all the business groups are interested. You see it today. So we brought the concept of the Microsoft, well, it used to be called the Microsoft Professional Degree, later changed to Microsoft Professional Program, and now it's called the Microsoft Azure University. So all the training around Azure, this is the new thing that they're now doing. The way to think about it is you have to be extremely focused on delivering high value, and then everybody notices and starts incorporating that into their products. So it's much more of you being the guy who's serving other business units, but still keeping true to your profession. I think for me specifically, so I had a specific focus on understanding the landscape and understanding the competitive landscape and looking at Udacity and Coursera and all of these guys and see how Microsoft as a company that doesn't really compete in that space can still lead that what, that was what brought us to that professional degree program that caught on like fire. And, and we had people on edX. We had thousands and thousands of people take those degrees and are now working using those professional degrees or professional programs. Professional degrees are, are now nano degrees, I guess. It's, it's a thing. So I remember from my time in Cisco, basically Cisco had the same type of basically training. So during the, your time there in Microsoft, were you were you working on creating something like a nano degree or was it more like absolutely uh, courses yeah yeah no no so it, absolutely the actual concept of the microsoft professional program it was uh, it started off from three folks in a room and we were chartered with something completely different we were chartered with find a way to do new recognition new certification that microsoft had for forever and we thought well actually to focus needs to move from the certification to what would be the credentials that would help people land jobs and do their roles correctly. And this is, I think this is a really important thing for product managers in general. Even if somebody states the question for you of what you need to do, the question that you need to ask yourself is where's the problem that I'm solving? What would be the added value that I can bring? And frame it within that original question that you were asked. That was the thing that enabled us to think about this professional degree concept. And I had amazing partners that I worked with, but it, it started being up like fire. It was three people who started and we ended up getting a team of, I believe, 30 people across development and marketing and all of those folks that just started working on it uh, more and more. And I did understand, me, is, this, is yeah. this external or is this all internal for Microsoft or is this for no, developers? No, no, external, completely, completely external. 
We started off specifically from data science because we saw a gap there. So there's a concept in the US, it's called bridging the skills gap, or especially around STEM related. So that was part of our charter. And we just wanted to focus on doing it using Microsoft technologies. What Microsoft saw at the time is it doesn't have to be you teaching Microsoft tools. As long as you're teaching Python, for instance, using Visual Studio, isn't the tool underneath is Visual Studio, then it totally worked. And that's part of what we wanted to teach. So we taught it using Power BI because we wanted to do good in the world and also have people leverage our tools to do that good. Is this program still around today? And No, so the program lived for two and a half years and now it got changed. It got incorporated into the new Microsoft Learning Org and it's part of Azure University today and there are a lot of amazing initiatives that they're working on right now. They sort of pivoted to working on Azure. There are two different pieces there. Azure is, is a big one that they've also partnered with other folks and then they still have the learning piece for other areas. So I do want to go back in time for a second because I'm seeing here that you yeah, also sure. worked as interim director of product management at Fring. I come from communications platforms. This is of high interest to me. What was that like? It was such a fun experience. It was my first product role in my civilian capacity. And I came in as the second PM for Fring, which at the time was one of the hottest startups in Israel. Back before WhatsApp, before FaceTime, before all these guys, we were doing mobile to mobile video and voice communications. And to me, it was an amazing experience, but about something completely different. About where do PMs bring value and why does it not really matter what your background is in? And you don't necessarily have to be an engineer in order to bring value. And it's much more around having the point of view and having a strong foundation. So for me, it was the HCI foundation and some development background. My boss at the time was somebody who came from journalism, but she understood users. She did not understand the technical stuff and she understood users. And that enabled her to build amazing products and just rely on me as her teammate to understand the more technical stuff. So that was a big learning for me. And it's something that I use today. I, I hired a guy who works for me today at Aptus who came from a teaching background and from pretty much no tech background whatsoever. And he started getting interested in natural language understanding and his credibility with the team, which is the most important thing for PM, comes from understanding natural language as opposed to the technology stack. So that was the learning that I took with me throughout the program, my years. Let's segue actually into exactly that. I know that we spoke very briefly before this started about machine learning meets chatbot meets a product that you're working on. Maybe before that, of course, give a little bit of a background. What does Aptus do? What do you do there? Yeah, so Aptus lives in a space called Middle Office. If you think of salespeople living in Salesforce in the CRM world, and there's the back office, which is all the finance, big finance systems and HR systems, there are three different pillars in the middle that connect them. It's the ability to generate quotes and send out uh, quotes to people. Then it's the contract lifecycle management, and then it's actually looking at revenues, revenue management. And this is the space where Aptus lives. Specifically, I was brought in to build our conversational assistant on top of that layer. So if you think about it that way, 
salespeople, when they walk into meetings right now, you walk into the first customer meeting and they say, hey, great, in order for us to proceed, we need an NDA in place. And then you go back to your phone and probably call somebody as a sales rep and it takes a week and you go back and forth. And finally, you get an NDA. And suddenly we said, well, what if you could just pull up your phone and ask somebody, your virtual assistant, to create a new NDA for company X and send it to person Y, who's your contact in that company, and it's done. And that was the starting charter for what we've done, and we grew it from there to go across pretty much the whole middle office. And that led you to a chatbot. Is that part of the chatbot, what you just uh, started? Or? Yeah, yeah. So. You know, chatbots are problematic. I, I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not saying anything that's new to anyone, right? People don't trust them. Now, that's in the B2C space. Now translate that to the B2B space where stakes are higher. We're not talking about it misunderstanding where you wanted to book your vacation. We're talking about you making a change to a quote you're sending out to a customer. So stakes are way higher and the trust factor is so much more important. And to us, we, we had an additional challenge where the company, like many companies in the Valley, created a nice little demo that we recorded with a nice lady that shows you how everything is working amazingly well. And we sold it based on that demo. And suddenly we needed to start chasing our tails and come up with a real product that people can trust and use. And that was the challenge that I was brought in to face and Luckily for us, I had the right team in place. I had the right folks in place, and we figured out some of the key building blocks in order to do this correctly. Actually, this is really interesting. I think in the last podcast, we also had a situation where there was an example of throwing a short video, and then people wanted a product that was not built yet. What was the video exactly about, and what did you end up building, and how long did it take you to build it? Yeah, so one of our biggest customers saw this video that outlined a sales lady walking and talking to her Google Home in the morning and then driving in the car and seeing her quota and making some changes to a quote and sending out a contract. And what the company bought, and that was on the order form, is we want this, those use cases, that in the video. And then you need to build a product behind this thing and suddenly you realize that one, some of the things the video says aren't doable. Others are not actually in our domain. It's in the Salesforce domain as opposed to the middle office domain. And you need to focus on what's right for your company while also satisfying what the customer wants. And the the balancing act for me at least was, okay, how do we not build a custom solution for that customer, but rather build a product and tailor that to some of the things that we hear from the customer. There's a realization there and it it, it helped me understand it very well is when you're listening to customers, it's not about what they say they want. It's about understanding the underlying need behind what they say or the underlying pain point and coming up with a solution that'll satisfy it but will be global enough so others can leverage it as well. So what was that exact problem that you identified here? And what did you produce? Yeah, so we we produced a personal assistant as opposed to a chatbot. And I know this sounds like a 
play of words or whatever you want to call it. But it starts from the very clear definition of the scope. The first feature that we had was understanding that when a user comes into a chatbot, they do not care about what the chatbot knows or does not know how to do. They care about what is the company they're interacting with. Think of Best Buy, right? Amazing company. They have their own chatbot. If you go to Best Buy's chatbot and you say, I want to buy an iPhone, you as the user expect to be able to do that. And it won't just say, oh, sure, I'll send you to customer support because that's not a flow that was implemented for that chatbot specifically. So our foundation was to say, hey, we're Aptus. Our day one conversations have to be, hey, I understand that you want to clone a quote. I don't currently support that, but here's the link to the manual. So yes, I understood what you want. Let's start from there. That's building block number one. Building block number two was to say, hey, we're good at what Aptus does. We're not a natural language company, but we do understand how people talk about middle office. So our focus is to say, let's take a natural language layer, understanding layer uh, that's commercial, like Microsoft Lewis, like IBM Watson, and build our proprietary layers on top of it and specifically focus on how salespeople talk. Salespeople talk in uh, terms like pull up my proposals from last quarter or from Q3 that have an ACV over 5K. If you tell that to a, a natural language engine, it would fail on multiple accounts because it does not understand business speak. It does not understand relative terms when it comes to dates. What's Q3 or two quarters ago or EOQ, all those types of things. So we built a layer specifically focused on those things. And then we built a conversability layer that has to do with flows. So this is the other place where chatbots tend to fail. They tend to say, okay, you drive me down one path, but people don't think about paths in a conversation in a linear way. They think about the conversation in, well, I changed my mind, or I want to answer a question with a question, or, okay, I got the info I need. I now need to take one step back and go down a different path. So we built those layer in there, including the ability to go back and ask additional questions. I'm piecing together a customer journey, but I'd like for you to actually take us through a short one. And then what I'm wondering is where does it still fail today and where does it really succeed? Yeah, for sure. So let's tackle the first one first. When it comes to the customer journey, we, we had a hill to climb, as we said. And this to me, it taught me something else about product managers. We, we all know we wear different hats every single day. Someday you're the QA person, someday you're the UX person. I learned to also be the project manager or the CSM, the guy who talks to the customer and is also holding their hand while taking them through a, we don't trust you guys. So, you know, the anecdote was that we were sitting in Philadelphia in a bar and the guy from uh, that company dragged us to three different bars until at midnight after he's very drunk, he was able to complain about all the things we promised him and he never got and that he doesn't trust us at all. <laughs> um, to the point that the same guy 
is the guy who's evangelizing it to the CFO of that company and is pitching this to all the folks in the company. And for that, we needed the relationship in place. Pub crawls are the key. That's the learning here. (laughs) For sure. to, To me, it was two things. It was one, it was the relationship and keeping in close touch and showing them the progress, but also opening the kimono up when it comes to our technological piece so I brought in my engineers. I, I felt great about bringing my my director of engineering to those conversations and showing them the technology and the wonders that we can do behind the scenes, but also involving them in the discussions and pushing back. I'm imagining here almost like a minority report for Alexa, where I'm just going, give me XYZ and boom, it comes. But surely you cannot address every customer's needs at any given time. That's the problem with chatbots. There's a lot of limitations. I'm sure there's also some training of the humans who need to understand kind of like uh, our day-to-day experiences with Android or, or Siri, where we have to adjust to the limitations of the system. So how does that work on a business level? That's a great question. So what we learned, and this is why we built our admin console, our setup tool, we learned that there are three concepts that you need to automatically address if you want different customers to be able to use your product in a B2B sense. You need to address a concept called synonyms, which is the ability to refer to different different things when you're actually talking about the same original thing, because company X may call proposals Quotes, company B may call them bananas. Again, not up to you guys. If you want to call them bananas, that's up to you. And company C may not even have that name, but have something completely different. So understanding which synonym is used in your own company and building the mechanism that allows us to tailor, hey, we have the concept. We know that you want to look up quotes, but because you said bananas, we know how to do that mapping and we allow you to train it specifically for your company. That's the first piece. The second piece revolves around implicit references. It is the ability to implicitly talk about something because that's how salespeople talk. That was the example I gave before. Pull up my quotes from last quarter. You would see that what I didn't mention in there is which field am I talking about in the database? Am I talking about the creation date, close date, et cetera, et cetera. It's different for each company, but it's usually consistent within the company. As in when people, when salespeople in company X talk about quotes from uh, last quarter, they talk about the quotes that were created last quarter. That's consistent. So that implicit piece, implicit references is something that we had to build into the system. And the third one had to do with aliases or shortcuts. Uh, A salesperson loves talking about uh, just pull up my pipeline. It turns out the word pipeline encapsulates a lot of different terms in there, right? It's quotes or opportunities from this quarter that are closing uh, within the next couple of weeks and that have an ACV block. And it's different for each company. But the ability to define those aliases specifically for each company and have those be different for each company while building it in a productized way, that's what enabled us to build a real product as opposed to just a one-off solution for a specific customer. But, but how do you do that? Is that some automated mechanism or is that uh, human training, basically? You just sit down and map. So this is where the partnership with the initial set of customers is really important. This is where dog fooding is important. 
we do have our salespeople. We talk to them. We do have several customers who we view as our core customers and we involve them early on in the process. And then it's about doing the user acceptance testing, but doing it in a way that's predefined as we want a subgroup of users who are willing to bang on this system and show us all the things that we didn't understand and then rapidly iterate on it. So that the one example that I remember, we had our first UAT and everybody said the valid until date or the expiration date. And suddenly somebody said valid to date. And we just never thought about that, right? But since we've already built the concept in the system of allowing you to map one additional synonym into a specific predefined field, it was just a matter of, okay, listen, look at the data, look at what they said, see where it failed, train. So that was the rapid iteration that also enabled us to use the conceptual thinking that we had. Is there a way to basically capture when there is a failure automatically, sort of extending the question that Nir asked? We all experience asking Siri to do something and getting zilch. It doesn't seem like their system learns from their mistakes. So I'm just kind of curious, how do you learn from your mistakes? I'll give you a short analogy. Think about uh, a web use case where a person clicks the button on something and then they get to a page which they didn't really want to go to. They would click the back button, right? If you track the back button clicks on a specific action, you would know something was not necessarily right, especially if you track the amount of time that passed between that click on the button and the backwards click. We're using a similar concept in this case. We're saying, okay, let's look at how many times did a user say cancel or how many times did a user say main menu or start over or whatever it is, or how many times was the same query, but it with a slight twist was run right afterwards. Or of course, go back. I didn't say go back. So all of those are the things that we were trying to look for in our logs to see where those failure points occurred. Is this something that is affordable for small, medium, and large companies, or is this more sort of targeting a certain segment? So, so Aptus in general targets enterprises. We have over 700 and something customers, mostly enterprise customers. And the way this product works is it's an add-on on top of our CPQ or CLM systems. So it's designed specifically to extend those systems, but it's also designed to go for the more casual users who are on the go. So the key, and this this is one of the things that I learned about chatbots. Chatbots are not there to replace anything. If they were, they're probably not the right medium for it. They're there to extend and provide the right user experience specifically for quick one, two, three, four actions, no more than five actions on the go that you can do from your phone, and they're very deterministic. The, so- the, the flow is... Yeah. Are, are you able to share roughly what the pricing is like for an enterprise? Like, does it go per seat? What is roughly the amount? So it's it's a percentage on top of our usual CPQ or CLM licenses. So that that's how we price them. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Great. So final piece here is uh, you get to take a product that you love to the moon. So Moonshot. Pick something, something futuristic maybe, and take it a step further. 
Ah, interesting. Something that I like and take it further. Let's go weird on this one. Okay. I'm a, I'm an amateur goalie. I play soccer. I, I love everything that has to do with soccer in general. I'm a big Liverpool fan and Maccabi Haifa fan and Barcelona fan and weird stuff. And I'm obsessed with jerseys and I'm obsessed with stadiums, but I'm mainly obsessed with goalkeeper gloves. Wow. <laughs> yes. All right. Yeah. Now let me, let me tell you why I'm why I'm talking about that. I think that this is one of those things. So we we keep on thinking of physical products in general, and we as product people work with specific tools, and sometimes we're settling for mediocre tools. But when you look at professionals in any type of sport, for that matter, you see that they use top-notch gear, and it's not just because they can afford it. There's a reason behind it, right? So to me, being able to explore those type of niche products, so in this case, a goalkeeper glove, and taking that to the next level, what else can you do in there? What telemetry can you put in there? So for instance, okay, how do I block shots? What can I learn about it? Which part of the glove does the ball hit? And my save percentage based on that place in the glove that I can hit. How about the speed in which I move the glove? The likelihood of me making a save if I move it faster or slower. Um, so you're still thinking about the goalie, but you're thinking about sensors that give you more analytics and dashboards sort of for the goalie. Is that what you're so, thinking? Yeah. So to me, a, a, a cool, amazing company that could be built, or if it's one of the bigger ones, Adidas or Puma or Roche or all these guys, they probably have this type of division. But I'm thinking if we can build a, a, a company that allows athletes, and let's start from goalies, learn more about how they can improve their game through the equipment they're using and start from goalie gloves and put in that information and prove that it can actually improve their game, I think that would be absolutely amazing, and I'd love it. In the meantime, there are very interesting gloves on a game called Alex, A-L-Y-X in VR <laughs> that I highly recommend if you've got the glove love. These anti-gravity gloves, you'll see. Well, listen, uh, thank you so much. It was absolutely a pleasure having you. Learned a lot. Right, Nir, what do you think? Yeah, it was amazing. And on the um, last note, if you're hiring, if somebody wants to reach out to you, maybe you're a one-liner of what do you need or if you're willing to help, if you're open for people to reach out. I'm absolutely open for people to reach out. I actually love product management. I, I love this profession. And if there's a way for me to help people who want to learn how to do product management or want to consult on whatever issues they're facing, I'm more than happy to talk about it. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me. It's just G turban with an H. Yes. It's a German spelling. What can you do? And, and the H comes after the A, like my Indian friends tend to remind me that I'm not using the Indian spelling for it. So yes, please feel free to reach Wait, out. I'm G turban at, at Gmail. At, at Gmail. Yes. Okay. So just uh, again, it's awesome. G T U R B A H N at gmail.com. We'll include that, that is correct. in the, in the summary. Great. Thanks so much and have For a sure. great day. 